Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, reading again at verse 9, where we read, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. One of my worst memories that I have from a primary school, and maybe some of the, the, the other uh, guys here will resonate with it, is of uh, the Scottish country dance classes that we had to do uh, around the November, December uh, period in preparation for these kind of Christmas socials. And, and maybe, I don't know if they did this in Lewis, but one of the worst things that we did in, in Allness was the teacher would have the boys uh, line up on one side of the hall, and the girls line up on the other, and she would then give the boys permission to go and pick their partner. A bit like survival of the fittest, apart from being good Easter Ross boys and being absolutely terrified of girls, we all just hung back and hesitated. And the very worst thing that stands out for me is I went up to one girl and I said to her, would, would you dance with me? In fact, it was probably less eloquent than would you dance with me? Uh, and she turned away and said, no. <laughs> it was a moment of absolute rejection that I still remember 25 years on. Not that I bear grudges against anyone, but I would love to see that girl. I'd love to invite her to my wedding. Just to... <laughs> no, I don't, don't quote me on that. Uh, anyway. Uh, I'm losing my train of thought, but, but there is nothing worse than rejection, whatever reason it might be. But in the Gospel, we find a Jesus who welcomes those whom others may have rejected, whom others may have written off. doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what they've done. Jesus is the one who holds out his arms and welcome to them. This morning we're going to be continuing our studies in Matthew chapters 8 to 10 and we're focusing on Jesus' welcome of this man called Matthew and others like him and we're going to be looking at it under two headings, the call and then the company. First we have the call, look at verse 9. Here Matthew focuses on the call that Jesus gave. The setting is given at the beginning of verse 9. We're told where Jesus was. We read that he passed on from there. Uh, Two weeks ago we found Jesus coming to his home city of Capernaum where he had healed and forgiven a paralyzed man. He's now leaving Capernaum and he's coming uh, and he's continuing his itinerant teaching ministry. And we're told who Jesus met. We need that he saw a man called Matthew. Mark and Luke both note that this man called Matthew also went by the name of Levi and we read that he was sitting at his tax booth. Matthew is a tax collector. In the ancient world, tax collecting was an extremely uh, unpopular uh, occupation. Uh, The Romans appointed uh, Jews to tax their their own population, their own people, and the way that these uh, Jewish tax collectors earned a living was by adding to the tax levy and keeping that additional levy uh, for themselves. So the tax collectors were viewed very much as traitors, as turncoats. Nobody wanted anything to do with a tax collector. 
And so that is how this man, Matthew, would have been viewed by his local community. He wasn't a popular figure. The second half of verse 9, we hear Jesus' call and we see Matthew's response. We can begin by noting the call of Jesus. And Matthew is sitting there at his tax booth, doesn't appear to have any interest in what's taking place. No interest really in Jesus. Now, no doubt Matthew had heard about Jesus. Everyone in Capernaum and the surrounding area was uh, following and flocking around this, this man who was uh, doing miracles, this man who was teaching with authority. So Matthew would have heard about him. But when Jesus draws near, when Jesus comes toward Matthew's tax booth, Matthew remains where he is. Nothing and no one is going to distract him from his work. And it's at that moment that Jesus calls out, follow me. It's the same call that he gave to Peter and Andrew back in Matthew chapter 4. It is the call to discipleship. It is the call to follow Jesus. It is the call to have your whole life and worldview shaped and directed by Jesus. Follow me, Jesus says. And look at Matthew's response. We read, and he rose and followed him. He puts down his ledger puts aside the coins, rises from his chair, closes the office door, and he immediately follows after Jesus. No hesitation, no deliberation, he just obeys. Now it's important to consider what Matthew is willing to give up as he prepares to follow Jesus. Peter and Andrew and James and John had also left their businesses to follow Jesus. But they were self-employed men. If following Jesus didn't work out, if they fell out with Jesus, if Jesus' mission failed, Matthew, James, uh, Peter, James, John and Andrew, they could all go back to fishing. They had that safety net, no pun intended, but Matthew is different. The, the Romans would immediately replace Matthew with another tax collector the moment he rose from his tax booth. Yes, tax collecting was very unpopular at the time, but it was a financially secure occupation. Far more secure than fishing. Far more secure than any other job. Once you were employed by the Romans, they would keep you on unless you, you turned your back on that job. And what self-respecting Jew is ever going to employ a former tax collector? Matthew has effectively damaged goods in the eyes of his community. And so he is effectively giving up everything to follow Jesus. And what's even more interesting is that Matthew is either too modest or just not bothered about telling anyone about this as he records his narrative. If you go to Luke's Gospel, you read Luke saying that Matthew or Levi left everything to follow Jesus. But look at what Matthew says here. He simply notes the fact that he rose and followed Jesus. He's not interested in saying what he left behind. His whole focus is on the one whom he left everything to follow. Now, friends, as we consider this verse, we can see the sovereign and effective call of Jesus. That is the central teaching of verse 9. The sovereign and effective call of Jesus. Jesus calls Matthew with the words, follow me, and Matthew immediately goes after him. It is what theologians call effectual calling. It's the idea that in conversion, the Lord calls a person from a state of spiritual deadness to spiritual life. A state of spiritual darkness to spiritual light. 
It's the idea that in conversion, the Lord removes a person's hard, stony heart and gives them a heart of flesh so that they find themselves drawn after him. It is the sovereign, creative, unstoppable voice of God invading a person's life. It is a miracle. In fact, it's a miracle so great that the 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards said that it was a greater act of God, a greater work of God than the creation of the cosmos. Now, think about that. If you're a Christian today, let this thought sink in. The sovereign Lord has powerfully chosen you, called you, drawn you to himself. And it's a greater work than the creation of the cosmos. Your conversion is a greater work of God than the creation of Mount Everest. Your conversion is a greater work of God than the creation of all the majesty that we see in the North American Rocky Mountains, the Grand Canyons. Your conversion is a greater work of God than the creation of Trihor or Gary Beach. Think of that. The Lord may have used a teacher in this work. He may have used a Sunday school teacher in this work. He may have used uh, some relative, a parent or a grandparent in this work. He may have used some events, some crisis, some providence in this work. But ultimately, it is his work. He has brought you from deadness to life. He has brought you from darkness to light. Let me ask, when was the last time you thanked the Lord for invading your life, calling you, drawing you, winning you to himself? And this sovereign and effective call of God is what gives us hope in all our, all our evangelistic efforts. It reminds us that no one is too far gone. No one is too hard. No one is too indifferent to ever come to Jesus. If their being converted depended solely on us, we would have cause to despair. We would despair over every missed opportunity. We would despair over every faltering conversation. We would despair over every poorly preached sermon that we heard or that they heard or that we delivered. But we take comfort from knowing, friends, that there is a sovereign Lord who powerfully calls people to himself through his word and by his spirit. And we wait on him. We depend on him. We appeal to him. We pray to him. We pray that the Lord would call people to himself, our friends, our families, our colleagues, our loved ones. We pray that he would call them to himself through our faltering, fallible, fragile words. Friends, let's not underestimate the power of sovereign grace. Let's not underestimate the power of God's effectual, effective call. But we move from the call to the company. Look at verses 10 to 13. Matthew now focuses on the company that Jesus kept. Verse 10, we're given a new setting. We're told where Jesus went, beginning of verse 10. Mark tells us that they went to Levi's house. Luke tells us that Levi threw him a great feast, but again, Matthew simply writes, they went to the house. He's too humble to say that they went to his home. 
He's too modest to speak about the great feast that he prepared, that he planned, that he provided, that he paid for. He won't say anything about what he did for the Lord. His whole focus is on what the Lord did for him. We're also told that Jesus was reclining at table in the house. He's enjoying a meal with those who are present. It's important to remember that to share a meal together in that culture was to share life together. To share fellowship together. It's a very intimate scene. It's far closer than just preaching from a distance. It's easy to preach from a distance. I find it, I shouldn't say it, but I find it quite easy to preach from a distance. But having people in your home, spending hours with them, talking with them, if you're an introvert like me, that can be exhausting. There's Jesus spending time in this house, reclining at table with these people. And we're told who was present at the meal. Look at verse 10 again. We read that many tax collectors were there. Matthew's colleagues have all come along. They were excluded from the spiritual life of the community. They couldn't enter the, ta- the, the synagogue, couldn't enter the temple. They were barred from the religious side of the community, but they were also barred from the social life of the community. Nobody wanted a tax collector in their home. They were seen as being so untrustworthy that they couldn't even give testimony in a law court. And here they are, men whom the community saw as having a disreputable profession, looked at with disgust and contempt, there they are, sitting with Jesus, and Jesus is reclining with them. We also read that sinners were there. Here are people who have fallen short of God's law. Here are people who have violated God's commands. Here are people who have lived dubious and duplicitous lives. Here are people whom the community had written off, while no doubt noting and gossiping about their scandalous behavior. Here are the people whom Jesus is spending time with. Tax collectors. Sinners. And in verse 11 we hear the complaint. We're introduced at the beginning of verse 11 to the Pharisees. These were the social and religious conservatives of Jesus' day. They taught a doctrine of salvation by separation. They believed that you could secure the blessing of God, the favor of God, the acceptance of God by keeping yourself morally clean, morally pure, not associating with anything or anyone that might have a tint of sin or scandal about it. And they went to great lengths to maintain that purity. And now they come with a complaint to Jesus' disciples. Look again at verse 11. They see Jesus and there he is reclining at table with tax collectors and sinners. He's sitting with those whom they regarded as the dregs of society. Those whom they regarded and wrote off as unclean. And they come to the disciples saying to them, Why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're attempting to get the disciples to doubt the credibility of Jesus. They're questioning Jesus' character. Questioning Jesus' actions. They're saying to Jesus' followers, shame on you for having such a teacher. You shouldn't be hanging about with the likes of him. He's with people who are unclean. And if you spend much more time with him, you're going to be unclean too. Why bother with him? He's an embarrassment. You should be following us and and our purity, our credibility. And in verses 12 and 13, we hear Jesus' response to the Pharisees' complaint. 
Jesus begins by telling them that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Verse 12. Matthew has already presented Jesus as the one who was willing to reach out to those with physical maladies, physical illnesses. But as we saw in Jesus' encounter with the paralyzed man, he's also come to reach out to those who are suffering from the great spiritual malady, that that malady of sin. He's the one who has come to reach out to those who have been infected with this deadly, dangerous, dreadful disease. He, He can't hold back from them. He can't recoil from them. He can't socially distance from them. Jesus carries on by drawing their attention back to the Old Testament. Look at verse 13. He takes him to the prophecy of Hosea and chapter 6 and the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The people in Hosea's day appear to be very religious. They would come to their temple, their place of worship with expensive offerings, extravagant sacrifices. They would come along and they would be saying, look at how religious we are. But they were lacking in mercy toward one another. And that lack of mercy displayed hearts that were in reality very far from God. They failed to understand that mercy lies at the heart of true religion. And now Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. There's Jesus speaking to the the religious leaders of his day and he's saying to them, I want you to go to your homes and I want you to read your Bibles and I want you to take on board what your Bibles are saying. They can be as religious as they like. But if they are lacking in mercy toward other people, if they have written other people off, their religion is just a sham. It's just a show. There's no depth. There's no substance to it. Finally, Jesus makes a statement about his own ministry. Look at the very end of verse 13. We need, for I came, not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, you have the angel telling Joseph that the child whom Mary is going to give birth to will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And now Jesus says that his whole purpose for coming into the world is to save sinners, to call sinners, not the righteous. Jesus hasn't come to congratulate self-satisfied people. He's not come to give them a pat on the back and say, well done, you're doing such a good job of being so religious. No, Jesus has come for those who know that they have a sin problem. He has come for those who know that they are unclean. Those who feel that they are untouchable. Those Those who are at rock bottom. He has come for them. He's come for those who know that they need a saviour. They know that they need his salvation. He has come for those kind of people. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been reminded of that great gospel truth that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Here's Jesus, the Lord of the universe, and he's eating with those whom the Pharisees saw as being detestable, unclean, the scum of the community. Here's Jesus, the long-promised Messiah, and he's sharing life, sharing a table, having fellowship with those who are cut off from the religious life of Israel. Can't enter a temple, can't enter a synagogue. 
He's the Saviour who, who draws near to such people. The Saviour who reclines with such people, those who, who feel that they have no right to approach him. He's the Saviour who's not come into the world to congratulate smug, self-satisfied Pharisees, but to call weary and heavily laden sinners. Yes, he was a great teacher. Yes, he was a great example. Yes, he was a great miracle worker. But he was and he is the Saviour, the friend of sinners. And you know, that's such good news for us to hear today. It's the best news that any of us could possibly hear today. There is no sin so deep, so dark, so disgusting, so despicable, that it puts us beyond the reach of Jesus and his amazing grace. I'll say that again. There is no sin so deep, so dark, so disgusting, so despicable that it puts us beyond the reach of Jesus and his amazing grace. The only sin, friends, that can never be forgiven is the sin of unbelief. The sin of refusing to receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour by faith. Every other sin can be removed as far as east is from the west. Every other sin can be thrown into the depths of the sea. Every other sin can be blotted out. Every other sin can be forgotten. It can be cleansed. It can be covered by the Savior who has come for sinners. I wonder if there is someone who is here today or maybe listening online who really needs to hear this. I wonder if there is someone who really needs to hear the words today. There is no sin so deep so dark, so disgusting, so despicable that it puts you beyond the reach of Jesus and his amazing grace. If that's you, why not run into the arms of Jesus? he, He already knows the very worst about us. And he says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Isn't that wonderful? You know, we spend all our lives trying to to protect ourselves, protect our reputations. We don't let people get too close for fear that they'll find out the very worst about us. And if they find out the very worst about us, they'll want nothing more to do with us. Well, there's Jesus. And he knows the very worst about us. The worst things that we think, the worst things that we say, the worst things that we do, the worst things that we see, the worst things that we listen to. And he says, I've come for people like you. Will you come to me? But these verses also challenge us, don't they, with the example of Jesus. C.T. Studd famously said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And that is what we see in Jesus. He had a heart for sinners. And he went to them. He reached out to them. He reclined at table with them. He went to those with a past and a reputation. He went to those with baggage and a background. He went to those whom everyone spoke about and hushed tones and prayed would never come to their church, never come to their social events. He went to those whom the religious establishment pointed the finger at and said were beyond redemption. He went to those kinds of people. And friends, if we have the heart of Christ, 
will be the same. In his commentary, R.C. Sproul tells the following story. Many years ago, I talked to a young Episcopalian priest who was serving a parish in Clareton, Pennsylvania, where I went to high school. Clareton was a mill town, and at the time, the mills were suffering from tremendous levels of unemployment. The priest asked me, how can I grow my church? He explained that he was pastoring a mission church with only 25 members. I told him that it takes time to build a church, especially when it starts out with just a handful of people, so he'd have to be patient. I went on to tell him, it's not going to help you in this environment to just put a sign in front of your church. If you want to have a ministry in this town, you have to go where the pain is. If I were starting a church in Clareton, I would spend time every day of the week in the union hall and the bars because that is where the pain is found in this town. If you want to build a church in Clareton, you have to be willing to get your hands dirty. He gulped when I told him this. Friends, are we willing to get our hands dirty as we seek to reach out to people who so desperately need to hear and see and experience the felt love of Christ? Are we content not to just have a sign up on Sunday saying, I free church services meet here? But are we willing, friends, to go where the pain is? Go where people might be in a mess? Go where people might say to us, what on earth are you doing going to that person? Going into that situation? Friends, will our church be a harbour for storm-tossed saints, but also a hospital for bruised and broken sinners. I hope, friends, I really hope this, that you do not want the High Free Church to be a museum where everybody's got their lives nice and sorted. And people are saying, what, what nice Christians they are. Such museum-like churches grow old and dusty. Do we want to be a harbour for storm-tossed saints, a hospital for bruised and broken sinners.